Okay, Revelation 21 is where we're at today. We're finishing this, this series, Winners and Losers, today. We're in Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. So if you've got your Bible and you want to turn there, you can. It'll also be on the screen behind me. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea, which means chaos. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty, I'll give water without cost from the spring and the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God and they'll be my children. Do you remember Reap a Cheap? Anybody remember Reap a Cheap? If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, you remember Reap a Cheap. He's the mouse who we know because he always carries a sword. And if you've, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, you know that Reap a Cheap is consumed by a longing for heaven, basically. He calls it Aslan's country. That's how it's known. I mean, he is absolutely overcome with making it to Aslan's country. This is what he says to the crew of the voyage of the Don Treader of the Don Treader. He says, my own plans are made. While I can, I sail east on the Don Treader. And when she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle raft. And when she sinks, I shall swim east with my four paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world in some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. Reba Cheaper reminds me of those heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. We got Noah and Moses and Sarah and Abraham. And the writer of Hebrews says that each does these really courageous things because they're longing for a better country, a heavenly one. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Do you long for that? I mean, deep inside, do you long for that time when heaven will descend upon the earth finally, once and for all, and the holy city will come down upon this earth where every tear is wiped away, and there'll be no more crying or mourning or pain? Don't you long for that? Man, I do. I do. Uh, maybe you've followed the story of the white helmets. The White Helmets are technically the Syrian Civil Defense Force, uh, but they're known by the helmets they wear, like you see in this picture. The White Helmets, for the last six years in this ongoing conflict in Syria, have rushed into any site of a bombing by any side and attempted to rescue survivors from the rubble. Their motto is, we're on the side of life. So they haven't picked a side in the conflict. They'll rescue anybody on any side. Khalid Farah was a painter and a decorator before the war, and 
but joined the white helmets because the people around him, some of his closest friends and family had been bombed. So he'd seen the destruction it caused and he wanted to do something. So he joins the white helmets and begins to rush into the scenes of bombings, into the rubble and the smoke and to try to find survivors. And maybe you've seen this, these pictures before. Um, there on the left, let me tell you about that picture and then I'll tell you about the picture on the right. There on the left, there was a three-story housing building that had been bombed, full of a couple families. And he and some other white helmets rushed to that scene and began to sift through the rubble and find survivors. And they, they found and rescued some. They were there for hours. And near the end of that ordeal, it was a total of about 16 hours, near the end of the ordeal, one of the women they'd rescued, who was a young mom, came to him distraught and said, my 10-day-old son is somewhere in there. And so they start panicking, right? And so they're digging through all the rubble trying to find this baby and they just can't find him. I mean, they've spent hours looking for him. And then at the end, Khalid, as he tells the story, was so exhausted that he just laid his head down on the concrete for just a moment just to rest. And when he did, he heard crying beneath him. And so they start digging and digging and digging. And for four hours, they start digging. And finally, they find this baby just from the shoulders up. And it's crying. It's surrounded by concrete and rebar, and it's been there for hours. And you can watch the video online. They pull the baby out from that hole, and he just cries and cries and then falls asleep in Khalid's arms. That's him right there when he's rescued. So this is that baby two years later, right? Healthy baby boy. I mean, you see that and you think, wow, right? You know, like in the midst of all this turmoil and hatred and sadness and death, like we did something good. It's like something good happened. Khalid risked his life to be there to save these kids. Like things are looking up. It's a brilliant story that I heard a few years ago when it happened. Well, Khalid came back on the news recently a few uh, weeks ago because he, in rushing to the site of another bombing, was killed by a bomb. And you think, oh, Really? makes you long for a better country, doesn't it? A heavenly one. Maybe you've heard about the Urban Warriors. It's a YMCA program that started to pair army veterans with at-risk urban kids, okay, growing up in violent urban settings. And Eddie, the founder of the program, said that these kids really resonate with army vets. They feel like they've got a lot in common with soldiers. And not only that, there's a lot of research about how growing up in violent areas like that is a lot like going to war. So you've got 10 and 11-year-old kids who've seen horrible things, 10 and 11-year-olds with PTSD, for example. And so Eddie says to himself, well, well maybe if we, if we got the people who understand that, the people who've been to war, together with these kids who feel like they are in a war, that maybe we can, you know, like change something. Maybe we can minister to, to both of them. Maybe we can, we can change this world a little bit and create this world where people aren't killing each other in the streets or in wars far away. Like maybe, maybe we can do something. So one of his volunteers, one of his big brothers was a guy named Abner Garcia, 23. He was an army vet and he had mentored several kids. I mean, he'd been through the cohort with several different kids. He was this incredible guy, kind of like the spitting image of what 
the Urban Warriors Project project was looking for in a big brother. I mean, all kinds of these kids who've now grown up, some talk about how influential Abner was on their life and getting them out of these really violent situations and changing their worldview. Well, Abner was on the news last week. He was walking outside of his house, killed in a drive-by shooting, just like that. You feel like, man, we're just, we're taking these steps forward. And as soon as you take one forward, it's like you take two steps back. Have you ever felt that way? They called up Eddie, the founder of the Urban Warriors Project, to talk to him about Abner. And he said, when you think about victims like Abner, and his voice broke, he said, I just can't help but start to grapple and wrestle with the idea like, what am I doing? Is it really working? That is exactly how the churches in Revelation are feeling. That's why I tell you those stories. And that's why John writes to him. Okay, here they are in the biggest campaign, the biggest project ever undertaken by humanity. They're trying to, by the grace and power of God, overcome Babylon, the empire, Rome, the wickedness, the idolatry, the violence that's all around them. And they're not trying to do that by violence. They're trying to do it by peace and service and humility. And they see people flocking to the ranks. The church is growing. All this good stuff is happening. They're blessing the poor. They're helping out the weak and the sick. I mean, things are going well. And then Antipas, their brother, is killed in Pergamum just like that. And they got to feel like we're taking these steps forward. And as soon as we do, we're taking these steps back. Like, what, what are we doing? Is it even working? And it's this moment of disorientation and doubt that causes us, all of us, who've all experienced that, to do one of two things often. Either we give up on Christ or we give up on the world. And the second certainly played its hand in Churches of Christ in our history. As you know, as I've shared with some of you in classes, as many of you have read, Churches of Christ started with this goal to bring Jesus to earth, to bring him back. That we could, they were convinced, if we evangelized the world, if we united all Christians based on Scripture, they were convinced that Jesus would return Heaven would descend upon earth once and for all, and we would enjoy eternity with God right here. But then the Civil War happened. And brothers and sisters in Christ started killing each other. And they lost total confidence that a big old project like that would ever be possible. How are we going to unite the world if we can't even unite right here, across the Mason-Dixon line? Chris told us about how Jesus prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and told us to pray that same thing. Well, what happens for many of us who become so frustrated by the earth is that the prayer, it kind of changes. It morphs without us even knowing it into something a little bit different, like God, your kingdom come, your will. Well, I'm sure it'll be done in heaven someday, and I can't wait to get there which is a lot different from the original. 
And what I'm describing there is this subtle but really serious shift in the substance of our longing. We can stop at some point longing for this better country, this heavenly country where Syrian civil defense workers aren't bombed, where big brothers aren't shot down in the street, where kids in Memphis don't go hungry on the weekends, where kids in Memphis have equal education. We stop longing for the country where that exists, for this new heaven and new earth, as Second Peter says, where righteousness dwells right here. And instead, we long for this place far away from all that mess where God's got our mansion, our robe, and our crown and glory just waiting on us. And if we can just get there, that'd be great. So longing for that isn't going to change what happens to you after you die. I think it's going to be really good. You're going to like it. Okay, You're going to be with the Father. But if you're longing for something far away from all of this, then it might change how you live before you die. And so that's not the vision of heaven that John gives us in Revelation. And it's not the vision of earth he gives either. He sees And that's what Revelation is about. That's what the word means, sees. He sees earth differently than you and I get to. He sees the same earth you and I are looking at, but as he looks at that very earth which you and I are inhabiting, he sees heaven descending upon it. And he sees this happening in two ways. One is through the work of Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. And secondly, is through the work of the church that continues the work of Jesus. So as the church in patient endurance, as Chris talked about last week, spreads the gospel, suffers for Jesus Christ, in the doing of that, that heaven is becoming tangible on earth. And it's this vision, the way that he sees what we don't see, that leads him to declare something that seems really outrageous to us. When we look around at the suffering in our world, he says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. You have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Look at the blending of present tense and future tense there. Okay. And then as I read at the beginning of the sermon, he says at the end in Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down, present tense, I noted it there for you, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. Or in other words, heaven's not as far away as you think, by time or distance. It's all around And according to Paul, this is really good news because all of creation, whether that's Syria or Chicago or the fire-burning neighborhoods in California or the flood-devastated cities in Louisiana, that all of creation, even Memphis, Tennessee, is longing for heaven to arrive here. And in the doing of that, to be redeemed, right? If heaven arrives, if God is with us, we cannot help but be redeemed. That's the cry of creation. So like reap a cheap, everything and everyone around us deep inside is longing for heaven to arrive. And John says, heaven's here. Heaven has moved in. I was trying to think of a metaphor for this. And if you take this metaphor too far, it begins to break down. So don't. 
But here's what I think John's describing here at Revelation 21. I mean, how many of you have bought a house before? Okay. So there comes that closing day. You sign all the papers, and then you get to move your stuff in. I think what John is saying in Revelation 21 is that God has closed on the house. Creation here. The moving truck has pulled up outside, and we, his neighbors, are looking on as God and the movers start moving boxes in, okay, into the house. And we are living in that season where God is moving into the house. Contrary to the popular opinion that we're living in the season where God is moving boxes out, right? Where he is moving out of creation, where he is evacuating all his faithful people to some glorious home up above with that mansion robe and crown and glory. Instead, God is moving in and the psalmist says, where the Lord is, there is fullness of joy. Well, the Lord is here. And so you, his neighbors, get all excited about that. And you're like, let's make him a casserole. Okay, let's welcome him to the neighborhood. Okay, if that doesn't quite, uh, quite do it, and remember, you can't take the metaphor much farther than that. Let's go back to uh, Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, because he, in the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, describes Revelation 21 taking place in Narnia. This is the end of the last battle, and if you haven't read this yet, you've had like 60 years. So um, I don't feel that bad, but it really doesn't give anything away. At the end of, uh, Chris would have given it away 60 years ago, okay? So well, I've waited 60. At the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, the kids, the, the story's about, believe that Narnia is being destroyed all around them, which is kind of the common narrative that, that many Christians buy into, okay? What they think, though, is being destroyed, they look again and they realize it's all still there, and it all looks really familiar, and it all looks a lot better. All of the good that was formerly a part of Narnia is still there. All that was bad has been transformed. Everything is just better and more vibrant. And so Lord Diggory makes sense of it to him. He says, the Narnia you're thinking of, the old Narnia, was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, heaven, which has always been here and always will be here. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it's different, as different as a real thing is from a shadow or as waking life is from a dream. One more slide. C.S. Lewis goes on, the new Narnia was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you'll know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked a little like this. That's pretty much what John's saying in Revelation 21. The reason that we long for heaven on earth is in large part because of the heaven we've yet to experience here on earth. You know, that a Syrian civil defense worker, a white helmet, can be killed while going to rescue somebody, that this big brother can be shot down while on his way to help this kid avoid violence, right? that the people we love, the people dearest to us, that we can lose them. That we live in this world like 
Paul said we're the last enemy to be defeated is death just makes us want to beat our chest, right? Like, why is that, God? Why is that? Makes you long for heaven. But John, and this is the really important part that I want you to walk away with, reminds us that the real reason we long for heaven is because sometimes we get to taste it right here. And inside our heart, the experience of tasting heaven is so good that we are wired to want more of it. The reason we long for heaven is that sometimes we experience it right here, or like the unicorn says, sometimes it looks a little bit like this, just like this. If you read on in Revelation 21 and 22, which we can't do because of time, but I'm going to hit some highlights, John describes what this new heaven is like. And he says that in this new heaven on the new earth, that the gates will never be closed. The gates will never be closed. Well, isn't that true of this place? Isn't that why we have preached about and talked about and practiced that anybody's welcome here? Whether that's somebody who's formerly incarcerated, somebody who's struggling with same-sex attraction, somebody who's caught up in addiction, or somebody who just doesn't know if they believe in this whole Jesus thing. That's why we've said, you are welcome here, because we don't have an earth standard at church. We have a heaven standard. That's the standard we apply to entry here. And we do this because John says in Revelations 21 and 22 that unexpected people will be in heaven. He says the nations and kings of the earth are going to come into those open gates. Unexpected people will be there. Aren't we all a little unexpected? I mean, I look around and some of you are super unexpected. (laughs) Aren't we all unexpected, right? That's heaven. He says that in this heaven, God gives the water of life at no charge. It's free. It's free. And it reminds you of how Jesus tells his disciples to lend money without expecting anything in return, which does not seem to make sense according to the way the world works. And you may remember this church that last year gave half a million dollars away to the poor, the needy, the best ministries in this city and around the world. Well, we're never going to see that money again. It has been washed away in the river of the water of life. And John says in Revelation 21 and 22 that the tree of life is planted there by the river of the water of life. And that the tree of life, its leaves are for the healing of the nations, it says, the healing of the nations. And if you've ever walked out the store into the commons on Wednesday night, you'll walk past Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists from Africa Asia and South America, all studying the gospel of Luke with Highlanders. And you think about that passage. You think about their kids and our Wednesday night Bible classes with Miss Stephanie and our other Wednesday night volunteers looking on. If you were to walk through that hall, that'd be heaven. (laughs) That's what that is. Um, He says, he gives the dimensions of this new heaven on earth and the dimension, the length and its width and its breadth. And it's bigger than the Roman Empire, which means it's bigger than the world as he could possibly imagine it. Or in other words, the scope of salvation is unfathomable. It's so big. 
And you might remember that picture we showed you some time ago from our trip to China where we gathered in this room, probably 30 stories up in this high rise building full of thousands of people who live there in China. And we gathered in this room, so many people almost standing room only, and we asked them a question. How many of you are first generation Christians, meaning your parents weren't believers? And you may remember the picture. Every hand in the room went up, right? The scope of salvation is so unbelievable. And in response to that, some would say, well, Aslan is on the move. But John would say, that's, that's just heaven, y'all. That's heaven. That's heaven. Okay, you see, longing for heaven far away from all this, okay, that's not going to change what happens to you after you die. It's not going to change your eternal future. But it very well might change how you're living right now. Because if you could see Remember, that's what Revelation's about. I mean, if you could see, really see, like the way John sees, if you could see that the way you are bringing heaven to earth by kind words, by a generous spirit, by peace in the face of violence, and by worship like you're doing right now, I mean, if you could see that, it won't just change what you're longing for, it'll change what you're living for, right? If, I mean, if you could see it. And instead of wondering, what are we doing? Is this really working? If you could see that, you would have the faith. Take up a white helmet, be a big brother, a big sister, the faith to have the name of Christ emblazoned on your forehead, marked as belonging to the Son of God, as John says in Revelation, the faith to be dipped in these waters of baptism, to have your robe washed white as snow, or maybe just enough faith to come next week and worship with us for an hour. I don't know, you might stick around for Bible class. Bob Dylan, I think, was summarizing Revelation when he said, you're gonna have to serve somebody. You're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, I hope that you serve the one who's bringing heaven down to earth. And in doing so, you might just find you've brought a little bit of it yourself. And that's a sweet deal. I'm going to invite the praise team back up, and I want to ask you all to stand. If, if you have not taken on Jesus in baptism, if you haven't tasted heaven on earth and want to in your life, I'd love to share that with you right here. Like I said at the beginning of service, I'll be down here at front as we sing this song. We've got shepherds in the back who'd love to receive you and pray over you as well. Let's worship together. Lord, the light of your love is shining in the midst of the darkness shining. Jesus, light of the world, shine upon us. Set us free by the truth you now